rent is up, but will it remain that way, or will it ever go back down? Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Miami is now the most expensive city when it comes to median rent. How long will this last? How many people are planning on leaving due to cost? Also, it's National Stuttering Awareness Week. We're talking with the Miami Speech Institute about the exercises used to help people overcome the disorder, a disorder that affects about 3 million Americans. And finally, say we won't veil ourselves again, that our souls will keep breathing timelessly, that we won't return to clocking our lives with lists and appointments. Miami-Dade has a poet laureate. Richard Blanco tells us about the position and what he's been up to these last couple of years. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, we don't need to say it again and again, but, you know, rents are rising fast in South Florida and throughout the state. Miami is has now surpassed New York as the least affordable place in rent. Median rent in the Tri-County area rose over 50% in the past year. And we want to hear from you. Share your thoughts. Has your rent gone up a lot? Has it made you reconsider possibly moving out of South Florida? And if you're a landlord, what, what goes through your mind as you're considering raising rents? How are you determining that? You can text us, 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Or post your comment or question on Facebook or Twitter at WLRN Sundial. We're joined now by Dr. Ned Murray, Associate Director of the George M. Perez Metropolitan Center at Florida International University. Dr. Murray, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, Lewis. A pleasure to be with you. You know, when you see how things have changed with rent over the past year, uh, over these last 12 months, as an economist, what goes through your mind? What, are you concerned? Is this normal? What, what do you see? Well, first of all, I'm an urban planner, but okay. <laughs> I, I do a, a lot of uh, economic studies. Um, let, let's, let's put it this way, Lewis. What, what we've seen over the last two years is, 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 well, it's unprecedented on one hand, but it's also an exaggeration of prices in the market that, um, that we've never seen, uh, you would not expect to see. And the fact that they're also unrestrained makes it all the more um, of a crisis that, that we're having. You've lived in South Florida for a while now, haven't you? I sure have. As a resident, when you see this, what do you think about? Well, my my specialty is economic development, even as an urban planner. So um, I see things through that perspective, how economies work. Uh, how you create more sustainable and resilient economies. Um, so that's what concerns me, because there's always been an understanding, at least, you know, I say going way back, that workers and, and, and businesses need, need to thrive together. Um, so when I start to see housing prices go up, particularly rents, that, that, and, and the fact that we have mostly renters now, and certainly in Miami-Dade, but increasingly... So in, in Broward and Palm Beach as well, we know these are our workers. 
Uh, they work within our leisure and hospitality industry, our retail industries, our healthcare industry. Uh, so it, it does concern me. And the fact that in the case of Miami-Dade, um, we still haven't recovered from, from the job loss of COVID. We're still about 90,000 jobs less than where we were in February of 2020, um, including the labor force that that's down. So it is, it's already um, hurting the, the Miami-Dade's economy uh, and, and it's also impacting all of South Florida. You, I think you said a little while ago that we've never seen anything like this before, have we? No, we really haven't. Um, we've been tracking this, as you know, for a long time, um, going back to the uh, housing boom, the, bu- the bubble in the bus, 2004, 2006. That's about the time we started to see rents rising in South Florida uh, at, at an unprecedented rate. Um, and, and it always has coincided with, with um, home, home prices in general. So back then, of course, that was a buying that was a buying bubble, but the rents were going up just as much. The difference is that when, when the bubble burst and we went through the economic recession, the um, uh, home prices went down, the buyer market prices went down, but rents continued to go up and, and they've been going up ever since. But of course, what we've seen over the last two years, uh, as we said, is not only is it is, is, is unprecedented, but, but it really is an exaggeration of of anything that you conceive of in the housing market. When we see rents go up this fast, you know, can you point to one thing? Is it, was it solely because of the pandemic or because housing went up so fast due to low inventory? Well, it is a combination of factors. Um, we, we do have a shortage of rental housing. We've had a shortage for quite some time. We just haven't built rental housing, well, we have, but it's all been on the high end pretty much. Um, and what has been built is, is pretty much low income tax credit housing. Um, so not a lot out there being built between 60% and say even 150 to 200% of the median income. So it's either, you know, a small amount of well, handful or so of uh, LIHTC projects being built in each county a year and on the other end, it's been almost exclusively high end. So we do have the shortages issue, which creates a vacancy. We have vacancy rates now of around 1% uh, in the county. So it creates this incredible imbalance uh, in, the, in the housing market, particularly in the rental market. Uh, and that's what's creating a lot of this uh, exaggeration that we're seeing in rent prices. Not to say that it's, that it, that it's, uh, um, it, that, that, that it should be happening fact that it is, and, and that there are those who have taken advantage of that, uh, that market uh, because of the imbalance in terms of uh, demand and supply. So, again, since we haven't seen anything like this before, the question I had posed at the beginning is, I want to know from, from folks, is as these rents keep rising and we find ourselves in this situation, does it make you consider, uh, you know, possibly moving out? and, you know, moving to, a, 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 I guess, a more affordable place. Do we have anything that we can look at and say, when rents get to a certain point, people start leaving? Can, do, you know, do we know? Is that something that might happen? Yeah, well, that's, it's a good question and one that we've been researching for a while. We, we were doing housing studies in the Keys back during that period of 2007, 2008, and, and that's what we found, was, was that the Keys were, were losing their workforce 
um, as rents started to get up at, into, into that 50% of household income category, which is you know, severely distressed. Um, and the question always was, when, when does what happened in the Keys begin to affect Miami-Dade and Broward and Palm Beach? Well, it, it is now. And, and, um, and so, yes, we, we're losing workers uh, at a very difficult time, as you know, because we're having a hard time finding workers to begin with uh, post-COVID. And, and now the fact that they're being priced out of the housing market, there's nowhere to go. It's not like back in 2000, five, six, seven, renters and even home buyers, they, they had, they, they at least could look at West Kendall, they could look at South Dade, and up north, they could go up to Lucy County. Uh, they, they, they had some options, not good ones, but right now it doesn't really matter where you go. Um, West Kendall's rents have gone way, way up as they have uh, down in Homestead area, and then as they have up in St. Lucie County. So, um, it, there's, there's no escape. And, and, and so if you have no place to go, literally no place to go, you, you do have to look outside South Florida and, and perhaps even the state, because we know based on the research we're doing, Tampa, the Tampa Bay area and Orlando are also suffering right now with, with rising rent costs. So yeah. uh, it, it, it is really unprecedented. Again, we're talking about rising rents and what that means for a lot of workers. Uh, is this, you know, it, it, will rents ever drop back down or is this just the new reality of living in Miami and in South Florida? We're talking with Dr. Ned Murray, Associate Director of the George M. Perez Metropolitan Center at FIU. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Are you considering moving out of the area, maybe out of the state because this is getting out of hand. We'd love to hear from you. Your thoughts, 786-677-0767. Text us. That's our text line. You can always post your comment or question on Facebook or Twitter at WLRN Sundial. Uh, we heard from Cal uh, Levy in Pembroke Pines via the text club. Uh, Cal says, as a long-term resident of South Florida, it seems obvious that the landlords want to drive out the middle class and low-income people by raising their rents to a level where they know these people will have to leave. It's greed without regard to the welfare of families who cannot afford to stay in South Florida. It's a real shame for what used to be a nice community to raise families. It's all about luxury, high-rise buildings, and opulent, overpriced homes. And he finishes off by saying, God help us. Um, and we also want to hear from landlords, by the way, too. Uh, you know, it's as you determine how you're going to raise rents, what is leading you in that determination? Is it just because everybody else is and you can make a lot of money? Maybe you're trying to make up for what you lost during the pandemic. Again, the text line is 786-677-0767. Dr. Murray, you know, being an urban planner, how important is it for there to be a diversity of types of housing uh, in a community? You know, you have your luxury and it seems like a lot of luxuries going up, but how about that affordable housing? What kind of mix do you have to have to make a community work? Well, it, it's a it's a question that's posed to us quite often, actually. There was um, the, the the rule of thumb, so to speak, is that every community, uh, whether it be you know smaller municipality or uh, the way county government would look at it, is that you need a spectrum of housing choice and opportunity a spectrum of housing choice and opportunity. So that gets into housing types, locations, um, and obviously uh, price. 
um, the mix of uh, owner versus renter. Uh, if we're going to have sustainable communities, sustainable economies, um, where our populations can, can settle, raise families, we have to have that spectrum of housing choice and opportunity. And right now, we don't. Um, it's what, been, but what's, I mean, when you, when you look at, you know, I guess it goes to the city uh, commissions and the county commission, uh, you know, look, the, I know they're looking at tax revenue. And so housing goes up, tax revenue is going to go up, and you'd like that. To, uh, you want that, that tax revenue. But, you know, where are they missing the point? Or wh- how do you get in there and say, look, there has to be housing for teachers, for, for police. I see police living in neighborhoods far from where they actually patrol. How, you know, what is it that you have to do in, in convincing those uh, politicians, hey, You've got to have housing for everybody. It's, it's a challenge that, that's always been there when it comes to affordable housing. Affordable housing has always been looked at um, in, in this box, so to speak, or the silo, uh, separate from uh, economic development, say, or, or planning and land use or transportation. Uh, we always have kept put it in, 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 a, in a box. Uh, in fact, the whole, just the term itself, and this comes up quite often, um, is affordable housing is a better way to term it because it has some negative connotations in a lot of people's minds. So for whatever reasons, local leaders, particularly elected leaders, and even at the state, of course, have not really dealt with this front and center. Uh, I think we're at that point. I was up in Tallahassee just before the holidays speaking to a Senate committee on that very point, that Florida's future economy is at stake here. And, and I think they recognize that. They wouldn't have asked me to go there if they didn't have to want someone to speak on the economy uh, and its uh, um, uh, and, uh, impacts that, that the lack of affordable housing and having. So um, it, it's, it, it's, it's something that elected leaders in particular need, need, to, need to provide the leadership on this in a way that they have not in the past. And, and it's not pointing the finger at any one particular elected leader. It's those who are in office right now because we are in an emergency situation. There are things you can do. Well, how about how about how about this? Things to do. Miami Dade commissioners did pass the Tenants Bill of Rights, and it includes protections for tenants. Broward County commissioners approved a law to protect tenants from sudden rent increases. Is that enough? No. Um, the whole thing about the American Rescue Plan and, and a lot of things, a lot of the funds that, that are being used right now by local governments to, to deal with rental assistance on an emergency basis, it, it was, was always intended to be temporary. It was always an expectation that once we had this recovery from COVID, things would get back to normal. Well, <laughs> we're definitely in a new normal, and a new normal that I think none of us had anticipated. So we, we have to put, you know, the Band-Aids are great. We, we still have to everything we can locally with the resources that we have right now but this is now a, a an issue that is not going to go away as you, as you so wait wait here. you said this is the new normal this issue isn't going away are you saying rents are never going to go back down to at least reasonable no the the, the units in place are are going to stay that level because you have really zero supply and so what's left what's left in the existing market is appreciating every day. We, we've just completed studies for the three counties, the tri-counties, and we found that 
the uh, each of the counties is losing just through market appreciation. Existing <clears throat> existing units about fifteen thousand units per year. And they're averaging a loss of fifteen thousand units through market appreciation, and that doesn't even factor in the past year. So if you add that 30, 40%, then, then obviously the numbers um, are far in excess of that. So without production, and nobody's really talking production right now, for the most part, we are focused on rental assistance because that's where the emergency is. But even that's a drop in the bucket because you're talking over half a million renter households, half a million yeah. uh, that need, that are, that are cost burden right now. And many of them are, severely cost burden and and those numbers keep going up by the month so. right so all right no <laughs> kind of depressing to hear that that uh you know this is i guess the new normal but production that may be the next point of conversation for this topic and figuring out if that's even possible considering how many people are moving to the area and and how much space we do have here um a conversation we're going to have to push to another time dr ned murray again associate director of the George M. Perez Metropolitan Center at FIU. Always a pleasure. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for the insight. Thank you, Lewis. Anytime. Have a great day. You as well. And, you know, we still want to hear from, uh, you know, renters and landlords. And you can do it on our Sundial Text Club. The number again is 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Because we're going to keep this conversation going uh, throughout the weeks. We did hear from one listener uh, via the Text Club uh, saying, I'm a landlord in Hollywood. We have not increased the rent on our tenants. I do not want to be part of the problem. It's pure greed and the part of landlords, shame on them. We did hear uh, from an anonymous listener texted in saying they're leaving the area. I'd love to hear from folks like that. Are you considering leaving the area? Because it's just gotten out of hand. Where are you going? Where are the better places to live, if not in Florida, in the country? Again, you can find us on social media at WLRN Sundown. Well, still to come, it's National Stuttering Awareness Week. We're going to talk about the speech disorder that affects 3 million people in the U.S. Welcome back to Sundown on WLRN. You know, finding your voice could be difficult for anybody. A speech disorder like stuttering can make it even more daunting. Our nation's leader, President Joe Biden, has been outspoken about his experiences with stuttering as a young man and how he's still dealing with it. Also, Charles Darwin, Ed Sheeran, Shaquille O'Neal have shared their own stories about having a stutter. It's estimated to affect 1% of the world's adults. In the United States, 3 million people. National Stuttering Awareness Week begins today. We're joined now by Patty Ruiz. She's the executive director of the Miami Speech Institute. Patty, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Personally, why did speech disorders, specifically stuttering, become a part of your life? Why was it so important for you? Once I started my career in speech and language pathology, I realized that stuttering was one of these disorders that most people were unaware of. They were unaware of how isolating it can be and how hard it could be to not be able to communicate with others. And as I went through the program and started my own practice, I um, I realized there weren't a lot of therapists that had a lot of knowledge on how to help out this community. So it became a mission of mine to be able to educate parents, educate others, 
and just educate our society in general about something that even though this is part of our scope of practice, um, is we don't get a lot of these patients frequently. We don't really get to hear about it a lot. So I just wanted it to be able to help and kind of get the word out there because it is a really big deal. And there's a lot of kids and adults that that are isolated at home, not being able to communicate. And it's, it's a big deal. Are there different forms of stuttering? Yes, there there is three different forms of stuttering. So there is developmental stuttering, which is when you're a child from the ages, I would say maybe two and a half, three to about six that you develop, you know, stuttering due to language and speech kind of issues as you go along. That is what we call developmental. If you're a child within that age, we consider that developmental stuttering. Then there is psychogenic stuttering, which is when you've suffered a trauma or a traumatic event, and then it kind of causes you to stutter. And then there's neurogenic stuttering, which is if you've suffered a traumatic brain injury, a stroke, a heart attack, you know, biologically, your brain gets affected, causing you to stutter. I see. So, and, and with, the, the, with the childhood one, what causes that? Well, there's been a lot of research in the past that has shed light on many different factors. To be honest with you, for many years, people didn't really know what was going on. And now they've, you know, summed it up to about three things, which is your environment. So if you're in a home that's very chaotic, very busy, you're always late, you're in a rush, that kind of environment can can significantly increase your chances of stuttering if you also have hereditary traits if your parents stuttered or you have family background like if it's in your genetics and your temperament it has to do a lot with how you how you react how your temperament is and how you react to the people when you stutter it has a lot to do with it like not every single kid is going to stutter but if you become self-conscious from the beginning or feel like this is your downfall it, it'll create a big big kind of like how do you call it a big downfall and you're going to think oh i don't speak well and that creates doubt and that doubt just grows and grows and grows so the idea is to make kids feel confident that they can speak clearly that they can communicate so it doesn't create such a big a big self-doubt that has a lot to do with it self-doubt their self-esteem their confidence when you think but about when, when you think me. yeah no no when you think about the uh the pandemic and how it's affected a lot of uh a lot well a lot of people but especially children what have we seen you know in in how it's affected children who are dealing with stuttering um you know has it been a negative effect in their ability to get whether it is you know any kind of uh, treatment for that or again how they're dealing now that they're going back to school back to the classroom has that been a challenge an extra challenge for them the pandemic has definitely caused a lot of delays for kids because being at home and doing school virtually especially needing outside assistance obviously has created you know a developmentally delay and if you already stuttered you were already kind of isolated and you didn't feel like your communication skills were good so it definitely created more of an anxiety for people who stutter because they're already kind of have this temperament that they're a little bit anxious about different things. And now with the pandemic, it created a lot more stress. Their environment changed. They used to go to school. Now they're home. They have to wear a mask. So all these things created a change for them, making the stutter worse instead of better. Have you heard, is there like a story of someone that you can share with us 
who, you know, that, that'll help us understand exactly what that's been like for them these last couple of years? I mean, I, I have many people that comment on my YouTube channels about how it's isolating for them, how they feel that other people don't think they're smart enough. I have a lot of patients that always tell me, adult patients, that when they go to job interviews, they feel that they don't get the job because people somehow think or it's a stereotype that if you stutter, you're not intelligent. If you stutter, you're nervous. If you stutter, you don't know what you're saying. And all those things are myths that should be debunked because that is completely not true. Uh, very smart people stutter, you know, um, Marilyn Monroe stuttered, Elvis Presley stuttered, very famous, successful, the president, you know, successful people do stutter, it has nothing to do with your intelligence, you know, but the, the, it's just the not being able to communicate really hinders them in every single way. Can you imagine that you want to make an appointment with a doctor and you call and you can't talk on the phone or you want to order your food through a drive-through and you can't communicate what you want. It is a really, really big deal. And, and it, it makes people shut down and become alone, which is, I think what's happened over the pandemic and they have no resources. They don't know that there is this national stuttering foundation. There's other peers, there's people that we're all out here to help, but you know, since that the word's not out, it's hard to get the information out to people to receive the help. I'm talking with Patty Ruiz, the executive director of the Miami Speech Institute and a licensed and certified bilingual speech language pathologist. We're talking about stuttering, a speech disorder that roughly affects 3 million people in the U.S. Uh, By the way, she mentioned a YouTube channel. She does. She has a YouTube channel. We have a link to it on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, You know, looking at, because I was looking at, uh, you know, some of your research and we talk about treating a person and that, you know, it goes beyond just whatever's going on within them, that the environment plays a role. Self-image. There are a lot of factors outside of the person. And I wondered, you know, how that treatment begins. How do you look at, you know, explaining how you treat a, a patient beyond just what's going on within them? Yes, that is kind of one of the beauties of having to treat a patient who stutters because we at least I, every therapist does things in their way. But in my case, in my opinion, um, I like to treat the person's environment before I treat the person because yes, I can give you many tips on how to stutter less. You know, if you breathe in, if you take a couple deep breaths, if you slow your pace down, if you do, there's different techniques that will definitely help your stutter decrease. But I'm not I'm not working with the environment, which is really what's making you stutter is what's going on around you and how you feel about you, which is the first thing I always do is I always ask my patients, how do you feel? How do you think you speak? How do you think you communicate? Because that's where it all boils down to. Like it's their perception of how they're speaking that makes their stutter better or worse. In turn, the audience reaction to the person speaking also makes it better or worse. So educating others on what to do, like what happens if you were to run into somebody who stutters, you know what most people do, they look away. And that makes that person stutter even more. So all these things is what we want to treat. We want to treat them like if somebody looks away from you when you start to stutter, you should just let them know, hi, I stutter. Please have a little bit more patience. And then you just made that other person feel more comfortable and yourself. So I like to treat those things before I actually give out any tips because the tips you can't always do in every situation. Yeah. 
Um, I found interesting is you, you talk about uh, some of the different exercises. If we can talk about, let's say, let's pick one here. Uh, one thing you work on to help people with their stuttering is pacing. Yeah. How does that work? So pacing is like spelling, clapping out all the syllables. You know, when you teach a small child syllables, you usually clap, you know, you would say like, ah, oh. So the child understands that it's two syllables we're putting together. So the same kind of technique would apply for somebody who stutters because we're going to kind of speak like this and we're just going to, you could tap with your foot or tap with your finger. It could be something that nobody notices, but it makes you slow down. If you speak slow, you will definitely stutter less. So it, it makes you slow down. If you notice, I can spell it out like this you would definitely stutter way less. So we try those techniques on patients that have a severe stutter to show them that they can be fluent. They can slow down. And, because, and, and the interesting thing is, I mean, as, as we pointed out, there are very successful people. I mean, the president of the United States dealt, yeah. with, dealt with the stutter, and this is a person who has to speak to people a lot. Yes. Yes, I mean, it doesn't have, stuttering has no, no correlation to how intelligent you are or how efficient you could be at your career. They don't, make, they don't mix. The only thing is that the, the person who stutters feels very self-conscious about it. So it, it hinders them in their idea of what they can do. But that's not necessarily true. They can do anything they want to do. It's just, you know, it's it's a lot of, like I said, and my biggest tip to most people that I want to, I want people to know is that it's way easier if you just let people know, I stutter, please have a little bit of patience because that is the best tip because at that moment, the person speaking doesn't feel self-conscious anymore about that. They have to get it perfect. And the person listening doesn't feel uncomfortable, like, oh my God, what do I do if this happens? So like now we've just relaxed the whole atmosphere into having a casual conversation and that makes you stutter so much less, but it's hard. People don't want to come out and say, hey, I stutter. Right. It is something that you, people can find treatment and they can defeat it because as we've seen, there are a lot of people out there who have dealt with it and are living very successful lives, as as we mentioned. I mean, some of the big names earlier. Patty, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Patty Ruiz, Executive Director of the Miami Speech Institute. Again, licensed and certified bilingual speech language pathologist. Check out our YouTube channel. We got it on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, Miami-Dade has a poet, an actual poet. We're going to hear from Richard Blanco coming up next. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. So I just said Miami-Dade County has a poet. It has a poet laureate. It's Richard Blanco, Associate Professor of English at Florida International University. Blanco was the first Latin and openly gay poet to read at a presidential inauguration. It was President Obama's second inauguration back in 2013. Now, we spoke with Blanco recently about teaching from his home in Maine, his love affair with Miami, and what it means to be the county's first poet laureate. And we started by asking, well, how that honor even came to be? The mayor's office had reached out to me to sort of get some sense of, they wanted to do this program. Uh, Nicole Tallman, who was the poetry ambassador, and sort of, um, I I think they wanted to ask me, but they were a little bit um, shy, thinking I, I would be too busy or whatnot. And we just, I was, I was just exploring, you know, 
different poets and ideas and i said well you know we could do it like i mean you want you want you know you want to come in strong with the first ever right and i and then we just sort of landed on that but i was still very excited because as as i've noted i mean to be um celebrated by the city uh the county this whole area that sort of is what made me a poet right, right. <laughs> so much of my work involves these landscapes both cultural human and um and physical landscapes so so it was, it was a much more organic process but i'm so happy to be able to help a program like this get launched this is unique because it's this is your you know it's, it's home and you have that connection to the place how do you want to approach this the position of Port Laureate is somewhat open. There's some official duties, so to speak, um, which will be coordinated with the mayor's office. But it's a kind of position that you that's open to do as many you know programming as you want to be as active and as involved as you want. And so I've been thinking about a couple things. One is that as a working class immigrant exile Cuban kid, you know, had very few, very little access to the arts and certainly not poetry. <laughs> so I, I want to perhaps team with obviously such great organizations as Oh Miami and the Miami Book Fair to maybe uh, do something with, under, with schools that are underserved in the arts and of course, in particular poetry as a way of giving back, as a way of making sure that, that, you know, kids have that experience with poetry or it's you know, at an earlier age, certainly I didn't start writing till I was 27. So you, you can imagine. And then the other thing I, that's been on my mind lately, because of the class that I teach at FIU, which is Latinx uh, literature, I have them read a lot of history and background on the various the various countries from the various authors that we study. And realizing that although Miami is in diverse city we don't always get to share those stories we don't know each other's stories and backgrounds and nuances and cultures so the other thing i have in mind is to create kind of like an intercultural poetry celebration where we invite all sorts of communities all sorts of poets from across the county and just celebrate it doesn't have to be a, a teaching or anything like that but to celebrate and share our stories through poetry so those are the two things that i'm thinking um you know very community-based that's always been part of my mission is how does poetry live and be part of our lives in really fun and meaningful ways. Are you back to any kind of, I guess, can we say normal? <laughs> the new abnormal, <laughs> the, the old abnormal, um, you know, a little bit, but I think people, you know, have also taken advantage of a kind of a paradigm shift. So there's still a lot more things online that would usually be in person. And it kind of makes sense, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, smaller nonprofit um, uh, organizations. And now we realize that they don't, they can't, you know, they don't have to go through the expense of flying someone out there and putting them up. So, so it's kind of still like a mixed bag. I think people in some ways are still suffering from a post-traumatic stress and afraid to even schedule things just in case. Um, but it's turning around. It's definitely changed the field. You know, we just realized that there are certain opportunities to take that, to take advantage of when it, in terms of uh, going virtual. And, and there's times where, where you just need that person to person contact and, and experience. You spend most of your time here in Miami, but you do have your place back up in Maine though, right? Yeah, it's been sort of uh, a little more, I'm going to say, blurry of a journey. 
I've left Miami twice. <laughs> you know, we all have our, our interesting relationship with Miami because yeah, Miami true. has changed so much. And the first time I moved out of Miami, I was I, I didn't want to move, but I got my teaching job in Connecticut, moved back, missed Miami terribly, thinking I was going to plug right into where I left off eight years before. And of course, Miami had changed so much. And then I got mad at Miami and I was like, how dare you change? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then uh, it was like I, I wanted to be this grand homecoming. And then after that, I just ended up on the other end of I-95 <laughs> in Maine, <laughs> thinking I'm just going to try something completely. I mean, most of my work is always right searching about home and identity and belonging. So that let me try something totally off off the grid, totally off the wall, and move to rural Maine. And so I had been there for a full ten years, and then slowly Miami started calling me back, and I um I I taught two fall semesters in a row as a distinguished visiting professor at FIU, which is my alma mater for both degrees, for my engineering degree and my creative writing degree. And I didn't think I was going to like it because, again, the school had grown so much. I thought they probably lost sight of who they are. I just fell in love with the school all over again, fell in love with the students. They were the same kind of students that I were, you know, you know, really hungry to learn, working class, trying to make it in the world, pushing themselves, um, not with all the greatest advantages. And so um, then I eventually was courted or courted or courted FIU. I'm not sure who courted who, whom. <laughs> and then it took a full-time position in 2019, in fall 2019. But lo and behold, middle of fall 2020, I had to leave Miami this time, like involuntarily, I mean, because of the pandemic, right? Almost did you, like, so did you spend, I had no choice. Did you, did you spend most of the pandemic up in Maine? Yeah, two and a half semesters teaching. So wow. uh, the f the first full in-person semester was just this fall 20, uh, 2021. So it felt like starting all over again as a full-time professor. <laughs> to me, Miami has gone through not a lot of changes, but also and now I realize those changes are really incredible. It's become such a, there's kind of a renaissance, I feel. Um, now I'm actually living right a few buildings down from my very first apartment that I bought in Miami, which is in Surfside. Um, so I'm back in the old neighborhood going to uh, enjoying this former life, but with a, with a fresh perspective and um, trying to take advantage of what an incredibly wonderful and um, interesting dynamic city this has become. You know, but interesting as the city has changed, you know, as you said, Going to Maine is very dramatic, dramatically Sorry. different. And I'm wondering, you know, what that did for you, spending the time up there in a very different world. Yeah, especially rural Maine. So I live in a very small town, 2,500 people. And so the sense of community is really strong, including all the gossip and backstabbing and all the rest. <laughs> um, but people take care of each other, right? Like there's eight feet of snow everybody's you know has to take care of each other nobody's above the other so it's it's Maine is one of the places where I find there's been there can be such disparity of wealth and and social economic status and yet a place that treats people so regardless so equitably and so this reminds me of how I grew up in Miami right as exile community we're talking in the 70s we kind of all had to take care of each other remember my parents and remember if somebody would come home would come from Cuba whether it was a neighbor or a distant relative would show up with whatever we could, a couple cans of coffee, some um, costume jewelry, some, anything to make them feel connected and at home. I really loved feeling that spirit. And I think when I came back to Miami, even though Miami had grown so, so much, 
I started searching out that community and I knew it was still there and uh, well, and including family, right? Like reconnecting family. Um, so um, they're very different, obviously, in landscapes and whatnot and culture, but but that sense of tightness of close-knit community, which I think you still find in Miami, right? <laughs> you, I mean, it's harder. It's There's a lot of close-knit communities, that, but they're there for us. Um, and, you know, again, maybe that's why I want us to share, like I was saying, with some of the poetry, share some of those communities with each other through, through poetry and thinking about these experiences and other communities that we may not be in touch with. I'm speaking with Miami-Dade County's first ever Poet Laureate, Richard Blanco. We're catching up about what that role means to him and what he plans to do with it and how the pandemic impacted his creativity. You can find out more about his poetry on our social media at WLRN Sundial. You know, I wondered um, with your students how they handled uh, the pandemic and did it help them? I always just wondered, like, with with creative people, if tough times tends to get the creative juices flowing because you always hear that. I don't know if it's just a trope or maybe it's true that, you know, sometimes the best art comes from pain and and struggle. I think there's a little more nuance to that, but yeah. So um, like I always like to say poets, when things are going well, they're looking at like what's not going right. (laughs) Almost like they need to find that, you know, that, that pain or, or that, that struggle or something that's not, you know that's not quite right and and the opposite is also true which is ironic but i think a lot of the poems um do you know when things are going really bad we have to find the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel so so we kind of we're kind of always trying to turn whatever it is happening like upside down and looking at the lo- looking at other dimensions of something that's going on and turning that pain into i wouldn't say joy that's not quite the right word but looking at it closely and seeing how how to dismantle it, right? And sometimes, again, when we're just kind of rolling through life and things are okay, we're like trying to look at what's not really working and what we're not looking at um, in terms of what's what's what what pain or struggles or things are we not are we shunning away from? Um, so so it kind of works. It's like a two way street. I wrote a pandemic poem, which had to deal more with the hopeful end of that. It's called Say This Isn't the End. And it's imagining a post-pandemic world and what are the lessons we're going to take from that and uh, which uh, which will hopefully, um, you know, shift something in, in in our in our world in our country so yeah it, it's that's kind of the the poetry dance so to speak is uh is there any chance you might give us a little taste of that poem so it's uh say this isn't the end say we live on say we'll forget the mass that kept us from dying from the invisible but say we won't ever forget the invisible mask we realized we had been wearing most our lives, disguising ourselves from each other. Say we won't veil ourselves again, that our souls will keep breathing timelessly, that we won't return to clocking our lives with lists and appointments. Say we'll keep our days errant as sun showers, impulsive as the stars falling. Say this isn't our end. Say I'll get to be thrilled as a boy, spinning again in my barber's chair. Tell him how I'd missed his winged scissors chirping away, my shaggy hair eclipsing my eyes, his warm clouds of foam, the sharp love of his razor's tender strokes in my beard. 
Say, I'll get more chances to say more than, thanks, Shirley, at the checkout line. Praise her turquoise jewelry, her son in photos taped to the register. Dare to ask her about her throat cancer. Say, this isn't her end. So it goes sort of through the routine of some of these everyday things, right? Suddenly, you know, the cashier that you've been going through all the time suddenly is the most important person in the world. And you realize what sacrifices they're making to keep, you know, to keep society functioning. Uh, little things like the barber chair, right? Like, I never thought I'd miss, I used to hate going to the barber. <laughs> and I was mm-hmm. like, my, my God, if only I could go to the barber. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, and my hair is like down to my, you know, my neck now. Um, not now, back then. So, so really taking inventory of uh, which I think we all did. And part of the poem is like to let's remember that, you know, that that should be the takeaway, right? And that, you know, everyone is an essential. And it's, everyone's in a way an essential worker, right? And everyone's an essential pers- part of this of this thing we call humanity. Um, and I think that certainly, I think certainly taught me that. I wanted to finish with this. I was thinking about what you said a moment ago and sort of what the role of a poet is. And, you know, think about how much you come back, Miami's changed. Florida is changing. And really, when you think about it, the world is changing. I mean, everything that we're going through right now, even post-pandemic. But do you see yourself as a poet, as someone who's documenting life, or are you trying to challenge us, the reader? I don't think those two things are necessary. I, I understand your question, but I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. But I would say the first. Um, I think that was my first impulse to write was to be what I call an emotional historian, which was to record not just my story, but the stories of community, um, the stories of our time, right? Um, and of course, through the poetic lens, and not not as a journalist per se, but like, what is the poetry? What is what is it that you're not going to get to hear in uh, or read in a newspaper 100, 300 years from now? What is it you're not going to be able to hear in a radio show, right? <laughs> 300 years, what is what is the, the, the artistic record and the truths that that art form reveals because of the very nature of the art form. So, and then one sense it's very personal because I, you know, it's also, I'm part of these communities. I'm witnessing these things. I'm involved in them. And that way, when I give that piece of an artistic historical record to someone, in a way, I'm also, I'm also doing the latter, as you said, it's also changing the world because if, if that person recognizes something in their life and it stops them from just, uh, accepting the status quo of their everyday lives or of the status quo of not noticing or not being connected, then I've also changed something. No. I don't, you know, there's this idea, oh, um, you know, poetry changes the world. I don't subscribe to that grand notion that I'm, that poetry changes the world, but I do subscribe to the idea that poetry and art changes individuals and those individuals go on to change the world. So the the hard thing is as artists, we don't always see the ripple effects of that, right? How many thousands of readers have read my poems? Not every one of them tells me, hey, this happened and that happened. So in that way, it is grand. And so I think it works both ways. As Frost said also, I think it was Frost, I don't know, Frost said a lot of things, <laughs> but you know, the universal is in the particular. So even though one is doing a poem about cutting one's finger, right? In a sense, there's more to it in the in the poem that becomes universal 
because it is that specific. Um, and the barber chair is my own wish, right? Um, uh, Shirley is my own cashier, you know, that mm-hmm. yet we all have a Shirley, we all have similar experiences. We all have that, that yearning, that desire that, that we suddenly was that, that suddenly rose because there were things we had taken for granted. So yeah, I, I believe that um, poetry does both. Um, it's very much about the self, but in that self, something, something also grand happens and that, it changes people individually, you know, much in the same way that music does, right? And music can become so personal, you know, nothing, one song doesn't mean the same thing to any two people. And a poem is kind of the same way. It changes us from the inside out in ways that we don't always, we, we don't even, can't always articulate. And it doesn't mean you're going to, just because you love a poem doesn't mean you have to be a poet, right? <laughs> right. No, no, exactly. Exactly. But you, you put it in a way I hadn't thought about before. It's very interesting. Richard, I, I can't wait till we get you back in the studio. Can't wait till we get back to those days again. I didn't think about that, but oh, those days are missed. But I do appreciate yeah. the conversation all the time, always. Thank you so, so much. The same here. It's been great. And uh, just a shout out to all Miami, and um, we'll, uh, we'll start programming some poetry as soon as I can. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, that's Richard Blanco, Miami Dade's first ever poet laureate. We have more on the story on our website at WLRN.org. Well, that's our program for this Monday, May 9th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovaya is our producer and social media editor. Engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Tara Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. Amber Mortigy uh, was helping us out today. And WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Merritt. The theme music... For the program is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Don't forget, if you missed any of the program, you can just listen to the rebroadcast tonight at 8, or you can just download the podcast. Just search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Well, coming up tomorrow on the show, Miami has agreed to allow Inter-Miami to build its stadium at Melrose Park. Is the deal a good one for the city? Plus, we're going to hear from the local student who led the making of a community memorial after the Surfside condo collapse tragedy. He was recently in Ukraine, helping build a memorial wall there. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.